We wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. Holy Spirit, please open our hearts. Amen. Please do take your seats. The coronation chair is an ancient wooden chair on which British monarchs sit when they are crowned at their coronations. It was carved from oak at some point between 1297 and the year 1300 by the carpenter Walter of Durham. I don't know if his firm is still on the go. But it was originally gilded, painted and inlaid with glass mosaics, traces of which are still visible, apparently. The coronation chair is highly protected and leaves its secure location on a plinth in St. George's Chapel in the nave of Westminster Abbey, only when it is carried into the theatre of coronation near the high altar. And it has obviously been undergoing restoration and conservation in preparation for the coronation of King Charles III. The coronation chair, 700 years old. This Good Friday, we look back to very different ancient timbers that would be the scene of a very different coronation. Please open up John chapter 18, and you will need those words in front of you either in the Church Bible, page 1086, or on a device, John chapter 18. And as we read this evening through John chapter 17, 18, and 19 of John's gospel, we encounter numerous people, many of whom at first glance appear to be wielding some form of power to one degree or another. We'll meet Judas, the soldiers, the officials. We'll meet Simon Peter. We'll meet Caiaphas, the high priest. We'll meet the Jewish leaders and finally, Pilate. And each play a role in this account. Each wield influence, each seek to assert some control and to project whatever power they might have. And so as we come to these chapters this evening, we are faced with the question, who is in charge here? Who is in control? Who wears the crown? Who is the king? And as we follow the readings this evening, I would like you to notice one recurring theme that runs throughout all of these chapters. Notice one word that keeps coming up. It's the word fulfilled. Fulfilled. For when we take a closer look at these chapters, we see with unmistakable clarity that there is only one answer to those questions that I just posed. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Who wears the crown? Who is the king? 
Firstly, if you look with me at chapter 18, we meet Judas with the soldiers and the officials. Are they the ones with the power? Verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Do you see they've got the firepower? And indeed, they do successfully arrest Jesus. But hear Jesus' response in verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him. He had spoken of his identity before and his own words were being fulfilled as we read in verses 6 onwards. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Next on the scene is Peter. Um, Peter tries to assert some control, verse 10. And Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus' response to Peter demonstrates that Jesus knows what is ahead of him. Jesus knows what must happen in order for him to fulfill his mission. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is then arrested and eventually brought to the high priest. And throughout the scenes that are described in verses 12 to 24, the religious leaders are trying to exert their control and do away with this troublesome Jesus who had built up such a following. And by verse 28, we read this. Verse 28, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Pilate wants to judge him. Pilate wants them to judge him by their own law, verse 31. But the Jewish leaders demand the execution of Jesus, knowing that although their own courts had many legal powers, they had no right to inflict capital punishment. And yet, if you look at verse 32, 
Even this is in fulfillment of God's plan. Verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Do you see already this constant theme of fulfillment? And from verse 33, Pilate summons Jesus and begins his interrogation. Pilate was the governor of the region, representing all of the might of the Roman Empire, and he ruled that area with the authority that was bestowed upon him by the most formidable power on earth, the Roman Emperor. And when Pilate was resident in his palace in Jerusalem, subjects would bring cases to him for him to adjudicate upon. And by the end of chapter 18, we read that Pilate found no basis for a charge against Jesus. And he attempted to release Jesus. But the religious leaders rejected this, favoring instead the release of Barabbas, a known criminal who had taken part in an uprising. And Amanda and I are now going to read all of, or most of chapter 19. So please follow along as we read. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. 
We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to the handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing him into four shares, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Thank you, Amanda. We need to know that Pilate had no great inclination to side with the priests and the leaders, and there was certainly no love lost between them. There was no reason for Pilate to execute a man against whom he couldn't find any basis for a charge. His first attempt at releasing Jesus had not been met with success, so his mind turns to another tactic. He'd have Jesus flogged and then brought out to the crowd, hoping that their desire for punishment would have been satisfied 
with this. And turn back to verse 2 of chapter 19, where we begin to sense the growing darkness of our scene. Roman soldiers held the Jewish people in contempt. And they would take any opportunity they could to inflict trouble upon them. And here, delivered into their hands, was a man who thought he was the king of the Jewish people. Imagine the sinister delight of the Roman soldiers at the prospect of humiliating this man. A king, eh? Then a king he shall be. Any king needs a crown. Let's, let's make him a crown. But no delicate, ornate crown. A roughly constructed crown of thorns then forced down upon his head. And a king, a king needs a robe. A faded, used military robe that now had a purple hue. Discolored enough to be fitting for a scorned and derided king. And repeatedly, the Roman soldiers, soldiers step up to pay mock homage to this mock king during his mock coronation. Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. The king of the Jews, a hated people, a pathetic king. That was their attitude. How they reveled in their power. How the soldiers, soldiers reveled in their contempt, in their mocking. Are the soldiers the ones in charge here? No. Because they, they spoke far better than they knew. For this is the king. This is the king who in bearing a crown of thorns was bearing the curse of Genesis 3. The curse that produced thorns and thistles. A curse placed upon sinful Adam, a curse now being born by sinless Jesus. And after the flogging, Pilate comes out to address the gathered crowd. Pilate repeats that he finds no basis for a charge against Jesus. This man, this Jesus, whom the people think of as such a rebel, such a threat, so dangerous, a terrible criminal, this man is then brought out before them and Pilate says, here is the man. And the man appears before them, flogged, beaten, blooded, bruised, torn, wearing a cruel crown and a ragged robe, a pathetic sight. What kind of threat is he? Nothing, a nobody, powerless. Surely, Pilate thinks, surely these people will see this pathetic sight and their anger will be satisfied. Perhaps it will turn, even turn to pity for this man. Here is the man. Pilate too spoke, spoke better than he knew. For here is the man, the word made flesh. And friends, as we take in this scene as the crowd did on that day, we must, gather, we must gaze in wonder at this sight because as we, as we see this man, 
this is our God, the God-man. This is our king, despised, beaten, mocked, scorned. This is our king. This is our king displaying not his weakness, but his strength, his power, his glory. This is the king who wears the crown, the crown of thorns. For the crowd gathered on that day, there was no sense of the satisfaction, revulsion and pity that Pilate perhaps had been hoping for. Verse 6, they shouted, crucify, crucify. (coughs) Only execution was enough for them. Pilate tries to shrug off responsibility. Pilate answers, verse 6. You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Remember as we read those words that Pilate was in this position as a ruler of the most powerful force on earth the Roman Empire. And yet, in this exchange with Jesus, who is the one who's in control? Who is the one who is free? Who is the one with true power? You know, one commentator entitles his reflections on these verses, not Jesus before Pilate, but Pilate before Jesus. Because Jesus controls the conversation here, even even with his silence. Look at those verses. You'll see that Jesus is at peace. Pilate is afraid. Jesus knows all. Pilate is asking questions. Jesus is secure. Pilate is vulnerable. And Pilate's insecurities become all too apparent in what follows. Again, he tries to set Jesus free, and now it's the turn of the religious leaders to try their hand with a new tactic to enforce their will. Verse 12, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Well, we can imagine the color draining from Pilate's face at these words. Pilate had already had several complaints made to his superiors about his ruling of this region. And he didn't, he didn't have an unblemished record to support him in the face of further disquiet. Some of his friends in high places, they'd been removed from their positions. And the Caesar of the time was a somewhat paranoid man who responded savagely to any hint of unfaithfulness to him or the empire. And Pilate could see the jaws of the trap opening wide for him. All it would take would would be for these religious leaders to place a few words in the ears of certain people that Pilate had set free a man charged with sedition. 
that Pilate had taken little notice of a threat to the established order, that Pilate had failed to dispose of a rebel, and it would not be long before Pilate would be disposed of his title, at least, if not his life. And a man of ambition, his career would be gone. A man wanting success, his life would have been a failure. There was only one way for Pilate to escape the trap. And finally, verse 16, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. In the final hours for Jesus, it seemed like darkness had triumphed. Here was the man, the king that God had sent into the world. Here here he was, Jesus, in the middle of two criminals, numbered among the transgressors. And again, as we look more closely at our verses tonight, we find the repeated theme that all that was happening was in fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus was numbered among the transgressors, just as the prophecies of centuries ago in Isaiah had had prophesied. The unmissable theme in this part of John's gospel is that everything that is happening is is part of God's sovereign plan. Even human evil is not outside of the scope of the sovereignty of God. Jesus isn't caught up in the tide of history and tragically swept unwillingly to his end. Far from it. Jesus kept his course. Jesus is the king who came to fulfill the ancient prophecies to achieve the eternal plan of God, to accomplish his purposes on earth. And in verses 28 to 37, we read again of how all that is happening is fulfilling God's plan, and we see more clearly than ever the purpose of the cross. And I focused on fulfillment this evening. Because in our own lives... It is vital that we see that there is a king who is in charge. That we know there is a king who is in control. That we know there is one who wears the crown. And that it is a crown of thorns. We live in a world of power just as those who lived in the first century, those who appeared in our reading of John's gospel did. We live in a world of power, whether it's the macro level of the geopolitics of the world or the micro level of the details of our everyday lives. Our world is a world of power. And as we join John's account of the day on which Jesus died, we witness the powers of the world doing their worst and yet the power of our God doing his greatest in the power of the cross, as we've sung about. And we need to see through it all that there is only one king who is truly wearing the crown, a crown of thorns. One who is fulfilling the eternal plan of God even in his death. And so if you are here this evening and if you are in circumstances where you feel that you are being pushed around by powerful people, or if you are experiencing, in one way or another, dark hours, remember these chapters from John's Gospel and see that Jesus is wearing the crown, even in days 
such as this. Whatever you are facing today, know that Jesus is the king, that he wears the crown, that he is in control. If he was in control on the events of Good Friday, then we can be sure that he is in control of whatever we face in our lives today. This Good Friday evening, look back to the ancient wooden cross and see our king lifted up and wearing the crown. And hear him say, it is finished.